The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. My own interest in the Civil War began 42 years ago with a visit to a piece of pastoral countryside in rural Maryland. It was the battlefield of Antietam. No one was there that November day, it seemed, except my family and, of course, thousands of ghosts of the men in blue and gray who had fought there. What happened at Antietam? How did the battlefield come to be so beautifully preserved? And what will happen next with this piece of American history? Our guest today is someone who holds what many would consider the dream job. He's the chief historian at the Antietam National Battlefield Park. His name is Ted Alexander, and he'll be our guest on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Answer the President's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a Senior Corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from the Brewster Building, third floor, Office A307, here on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a cold fall autumn-like day in October 2009. Uh, It finally feels like uh, autumn is here and school should be in session, as indeed it is. And though speaking from East Carolina, not speaking on behalf of ECU, nor its opponent, the Rice Owls, who will play in football tomorrow, uh, nor anyone else, just me, and I'm sure our guest will be speaking for himself and not the federal government or any other institutions today, always that way here on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, Thank you to all uh, listeners, as always, for listening, and especially to those who have uh, sent in uh, some suggestions over the last week or two. There were some really good ideas, uh, which I am pursuing and uh, uh, following up to to get uh, uh, get people on the show. Uh, there will be some some very good shows in the weeks ahead. Looking forward to it. Uh, in the near future, we'll have Dan Stoll, editor of the Papers of Abraham Lincoln, uh, on to talk with us. They've produced uh, a new. 
uh, paper version of the the sort of highlights of the legal papers of Lincoln, and now they're working on the the full scale papers of Lincoln with the Library of Congress. And we'll talk with Dan about that uh, in a week or so. So uh, thanks again for all the suggestions, and especially thanks uh, for the donations, the very generous donations that have come in recently to World Talk Radio, or specifically to Civil War Talk Radio. Um, if you do wish to contribute to the book fund here, it's civilwartr at aol.com. Send a, a PayPal donation there. I'll be happy to send you a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves or All for the Regiment, uh, two books of which I have several copies lying around, oddly enough. And they'd be happy to uh, sign and send those off to you if you'd like. Uh, the donations are not tax deductible, I should stress. Uh, it's uh, they are used for the educational purpose of buying books for my library so I can uh, have more things to talk about on this show. But there is nothing to stop me from using them to buy tickets for the game tomorrow or anything else. Um, now, tickets you can't get, uh, speaking of tickets for sports events, uh, would be tickets for the next Greenville Stars game. That's the girls 14 and under team that I'm coaching here in Greenville. Uh, you can't get tickets because they don't print them. It's just a kid's game down at the park. Uh, you can just show up and watch if you wanted to. But I know uh, around the world people have been waiting uh, eagerly to see who will qualify for World Cup next fall and to see if the Greenville Stars won, which we did last Saturday, defeating Roanoke Rapids by a score of 3 to nothing. So the uh, two-game losing streak is over. The parents have gotten off my back, and we're all happy again for uh, for another week until... Uh, uh, until the next game when uh, the the egos and self-esteem and self-image of dozens of adults ride on the fate of their 13-year-old daughter's uh, soccer ability. Uh, as it should be, that's what youth sports is all about after all. Well, uh, let's move on from that uh, back to the 19th century where, where this show belongs and uh, uh, bring in our guest today. Uh, he is uh, the chief historian at the Antietam National Battlefield Park, uh, Ted Alexander. Ted, are you there? Yes, sir. Hi. Uh, thank you for being on the show today. It's, Thanks uh, for having me, Jerry. Uh, it was. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd hope to have you on for quite some time, but I'll tell you, I called your uh, uh, the, the phone number for the, the Battlefield Park, and someone answered. And when I, I identified myself and asked for you, they the person turned out to be a Civil War talk radio listener and uh, uh, knew who I was. And I said, well, that, that seals it. Um, if they listen to the show there, then, uh, then he's on for sure. So I, I appreciate that your staff, or at least somebody down in the, uh, maybe down in the, the bookstore, is uh, listening to the show when they should be working. <laughs> Great. So, uh, well, tell me a, a bit about uh, this job. What, what does the, uh, the chief historian do at a national battlefield park? Well, this... Uh position was developed, see, I've been here uh, in this position uh, around 17 years. I came here uh, in 1985 and was a park ranger and was the volunteer coordinator. We had one of the largest volunteer programs on a Civil War battlefield, and we were fortunate to win the Take Pride in America Award for it and go to the White House and all that. And... Uh, then in 92, I became the uh, historian. Uh, it involves a lot on paper, 
at least, um, and uh, that includes uh, me having stewardship over the library, our archival collection, which is fairly extensive, and uh, the museum, uh, i.e. curatorial duties. Now, fortunately, I have a uh, ranger that assists me that actually those actually there's two rangers that assist me now and they know much more about curatorial duties than I do and they do a much better job uh, that's Alan Schmidt and uh, Manny Gentile uh, but those are the set duties and also I review uh, reports done both in-house and out uh, contracted out I do special programs for occasionally for groups that come in. I do off-site programs for various groups, including Civil War roundtables around the country. And uh, that covers a lot of it, what I've said there. When you became a ranger, was this, were you interested in the Civil War uh, before you got this job? Was this something you wanted to do? I turned 60 a couple weeks ago. So I've been at it for 55 years. When I was five years old, uh, my mother and grandmother took me to Gettysburg. And when I went there, my grandmother kept talking about Dad said this and Dad was here. She was talking about her father, who was in the 1st Maryland Potomac Home Brigade. And being born in Mississippi, you know, I was raised in Greencastle, Pennsylvania, and, and also in the Hagerstown, Maryland area, my younger years. Um, but I'd spend my summers in Mississippi because I was born down there. My dad was from there. And um, I'd be with my granddad in Mississippi, and he'd talk about dad said this, dad said that. Well, his dad was in the 31st Mississippi Regiment in the Vicksburg Campaign. And that got it started, and it's never ended. Did so? You had relatives on both sides. Did you have a uh, an early bias toward one side or the other? Well, not at first, but then I started going through my Confederate phase and uh, went through the Confederate phase for many years, and now I'm just look at it, and it, uh, that war is over. And we're all Americans, and we've got a lot more to worry about than North and South right now. So this, so you have uh, this personal connection through, uh, through, through ancestors who were there, which really does point out how close we are to the war, I suppose, in, in terms of, of years that you know, you knew people who knew people who were there. It does, and I remember my grandmother having the other old ladies in the neighborhood, you know, these are people, this is back in the 50s, and uh, ladies in their 80s, and they were all sitting around talking and hearing the other stories of their dads being in the military, and it was just fascinating. So the uh, did you study the Civil War in school? Did you train as a historian in any way, or did this just I come did. along later? You know, when I was in grade school, I... Uh, uh, Using thirty millim painted thirty millimeter figures, I designed a number of uh, 
dioramas, uh, probably the biggest one. Uh, oh, it, it was on, uh, it was 1960, I think it was in sixth grade, and it was the first Battle of Manassas. It had little lights blinked on, and we did a narration and everything. And uh, my teenage years, some of the interest waned because it's not cool to be into history, you know. And then uh, I went in the military. I was in the Marine Corps for about five years. And when I traveled in the Marine Corps, I'd always try to see historical sites. This was stateside and overseas. And I was in Vietnam, so I got to see what a war was like. And when I got out, uh, I was married with a kid and uh, got interested again, heavy duty, in the uh, Civil War. And uh, I was at a church camp meeting, and one of the evangelists uh, recommended uh, to go to college. I pretty much put that idea aside, although my mother wanted me to go to college. But uh, when I got out of school, high school, I didn't want anything to do with schooling. But I did go on to college, and uh, I got a bachelor's degree in history from the University of Maryland, and a master's uh, later on uh, uh, from the uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. The first, the bachelor's was at College Park. Well, that's uh, the UMBC. The Reed Mitchell was there for a while, I think. That's right, I, and uh, also uh, Jim Moore, who did the Cormany uh, papers. So you you uh I studied under Jim as a matter of fact. He uh-huh. was my advisor. Now what was that experience like given that you had, you know, as you say this personal connection with the war plus your own experience uh, in the military? Uh one one thing that often comes up on this show when I talk to authors or uh, people involved with the war is uh that you get a lot of the the difference between people who study the war academically or professionally and those who do it as a hobby uh those who have experience of it uh, what what was it like going back to school and and studying this from a different viewpoint well uh actually i found school uh i, I was intimidated at first you know uh about going to college but then i found out that um <clears throat> most of the other people were really young and way behind me and just trying to figure out what life's all about. <laughs> and then uh, I had writing skill. Matter of fact, when I graduated from high school, I won the first award at Smithburg, uh, Maryland, uh, the high school there. It was the first year they had an award for journalism. We'd, I'd helped found the school high school newspaper, and I won the award for journalism because of my writing skills. And those writing skills have saved me. Uh, they got me through college because if you can write well on the essays and do good papers, uh, you know, you can get through um, even to the point of uh, I was going to a, a church college uh, initially, and uh, we had a class on uh, biblical eschatology, which is the study of last day events. And the uh, professor had put forth a... Um, I don't know if I'd want to say theory, but uh, an interpretation of one aspect of the book of Revelation. And I wrote about it. I was entirely wrong. But the professor said it read so well, it sounded so good, he was going to pass me on it. Well, that, that as a professor, I can say if, if a student can write well, that covers up a multitude uh, 
uh, of academic issues. Uh, I, I wish our students could write well, and and when they do, it, it's the skill that will get them through everything. I was telling the students that this morning why they should major in history. Uh, if you want to learn a skill that will last you forever, learn how to write well, and that will do it. The one thing uh, regarding that is very rewarding. I taught high school history for a couple of years, and uh, my academic students, and they grumbled and moaned, but I, particularly my academic students, I made write essays. Years later, I had parents, a few parents come up to me and thanked me for that because it helped their kids get through college. Well, that's absolutely the case. That is the uh, just the number one skill that we, we try to teach them in our classes and, and that will benefit people anywhere. So you got so you had uh, some academic training, your experience, your interest. Uh, then did you join the Park Service to go to Antietam to a battlefield, or did you just join uh, and, and got sent there? How did how does that? Uh, well, I don't want to I don't want to be too dramatic here, uh-huh. but, I, but I do feel blessed, and I'll tell you why. The second battlefield my mom took me to was Antietam because we lived right between. Live right on the Mason-Dixon line, uh, short distance from both. So the second one was Antietam, and I fell in love with it. And um, my dream, even as a kid in elementary school, was to someday be a ranger or a historian at either Gettysburg or Antietam. And here I am. so uh, I feel blessed. Well, that, that's extraordinary uh, to to have that vision and be able to to live it out. That is wonderful. I uh, started uh, actually, though, under a minute. Your uh, listeners will know this name. I started in the Park Service under Dennis Fry. He hired me as a seasonal at Harper's Ferry, and I did a couple seasons there, and then went on full time. Uh, working as a park ranger uh, down on the National Mall, the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, and a number of other sites. And then I went to Fort Washington, which is a fortification built to defend the nation's capital. And from there, I uh, was able to arrange a transfer up to uh, Antietam. The man that hired me here was Mr. Paul Chow's. Many of your listeners are probably familiar with him. He's one of the leading uh, authorities on Civil War artillery in the country. So you, you've got to see you know, some different places through the Park Service, uh, but, uh, but but worked your way up through into Antietam. The uh, well, let me ask about the the battlefield itself because you, you talked about falling in love with it, and and I, as I said in the introduction, I had. The same experience when I saw it, I was, uh, I think, nine years old uh, and didn't really have a, a strong interest in the Civil War until that day. Uh, my family stopped there during a, a vacation. We were coming back to Michigan from, from Washington, visiting friends, and it was just captivating. I, I, I still can't say what it is, but uh, I, I came back and just got every book I could read on the subject. What do you think it is about this particular battlefield that that can affect people so strongly? Well, I think one is uh, the lack of commercialism and uh, the fact that it's uh, very pristine. Uh, uh, 
you get an experience at Gettysburg, uh, but a different experience. You have, you know, over a thousand monuments up there. You have, uh, and they've cut down a lot on it, but you still have a lot of commercial commercialism. Here, this is essentially out in still out in the boondocks. Uh, the, uh, Antietam and Shiloh are my two favorite Civil War battlefields. Gettysburg's a close third, but. Uh, you can walk out in the fields here, and you're just, uh, you know, you, you might not see another human. Uh, and uh, when I first came here, uh, is even more so. There was no big visitor center. Uh, the visitor center, so to speak, was in the cemetery lodge at the National Cemetery. It was very small. I remember sometimes there'd be one ranger on duty, and... Uh, very low-key. Now, the Park Service didn't own much acreage back then, Uh, maybe a couple hundred acres. Uh, Only in the past 20 years, we've gained much of the acreage. We have over 3,000 acres now. You can walk from one end of the battlefield to the other without crossing any private property. Ted, I want to pick up on that point uh, about what the the Park Service owns and doesn't, but we're going to take a short break first. We'll come right back. We're talking with the Chief Historian at Antietam, Ted Alexander, today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure, 1-800-BE-READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. How was it that Civil War generals had the foresight to stage so many of their battles in national parks? And how did they avoid the monuments when they were fighting? We'll ask these questions, and hopefully some better ones, of our guest, Ted Alexander, Chief Historian at Antietam, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. 
World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with Ted Alexander. He's the chief historian of the Antietam National Battlefield Park. We were talking in our first segment uh, about Ted's remarkable uh, career leading up to uh, Antietam. And uh, Ted, as you said, it was a childhood dream of yours to one day be the uh, the ranger, uh, uh, the historian at uh, a place like Antietam, or specifically Antietam, and, and here you are today. That's not something uh, everyone gets to do, obviously, but uh, I, I share your feeling of, of having, uh, of being one of the lucky ones uh, from my earliest visit to Antietam, which sparked my interest in the Civil War uh, some 40 years ago. Uh, now I get to teach it uh, in a university classroom instead of uh, the battlefield, perhaps, but still, uh, I get paid for uh, reading books and thinking about the war and writing about it and uh, what could be more uh, rewarding. So, uh, not not everybody uh, gets to do that, obviously, but but you uh, you did, and that, that is a, a, quite a story. Now we were talking about the battlefield itself, then, just as we we came to the break there, and you mentioned that when you first uh, started working there 17 years ago, the Park Service did not own uh, all the land. When when did the Park Service first get any of the land at Antietam? Do you know some of the history of the the battlefield park? It first got uh, some of the land. Um, when the battlefield was established in 1890. Um, these battlefields were established by the U.S. War Department. By the end of the 19th century, there was a um, desire to commemorate what had happened on these fields, and a large portion, uh, large uh, majority of the members of Congress were Civil War veterans north and south. That helped get legislation passed. Also, uh, they decided it would be, uh, for the critics that thought this was uh, frivolous, uh, they put a utilitarian uh, element in there uh, that the uh, they'd be used as uh, classes, open-air classes for the military, for the officers' so-called staff rides, which still go on today. But uh, very little acreage. There's two plans that they put in place. One becomes known as the Gettysburg Plan. This is where a lot of green space is purchased, and the armies commemorate what they did there, and they put up a lot of monuments, of course. Uh, that's the national, they were termed national military parks with emphasis on parks, um, park-like environment. 
Then there was the Antietam Plan. This was an economy plan, and they established initially it was called Antietam National Battlefield Site. And here, the plan is uh, economy. They're not going to buy up a lot of land. It's just to mark uh, the battle, and they're going to buy up enough land to establish roads and put up uh, these uh, iron tablets that tell the story of the battle. There's over 400 of them here at Antietam. Um, so initially Antietam, you know, having been established under this plan, has very little green space, and they never think that way out here in the boondocks of western Maryland that that would ever change. Uh so it's not until the uh, probably the Civil War centennial where additional acreage is added, and that's a, just a little bit. Uh, we require more, a little more green space uh, in the area of uh, Moomaw Farm, for example. But it's in the uh, past uh, uh, twenty years or so, um, twenty-five years. Uh, where we aggressively have sought uh, additional acreage, acreage, and this is uh, under uh, a number of superintendents that really uh, put Antietam on the map. The present superintendent, uh, uh, John Howard, who's worked closely with the community and with preservation groups to acquire more land, and then his predecessors, uh, Susan Moore and Richard Ramber, who, uh, again, did a lot to uh, put Antietam on the map. Now, when you look at some of the battlefields, places in northern Virginia like Manassas, you see they're under intense development pressure. And, of course, there's the, the wilderness Walmart uh, issue going on right now. Um, is Antietam under development pressure? Um. Well, I, to some I don't degree, want to jinx not, not like what you're describing because those areas uh, have become just part of uh, the uh, suburbs of Washington D.C. It's rather sad because in 1960, when my mom was taking me around to these uh, battlefields, so my cousin was along, and we were—I just saw him the other night. We were reminiscing about this. Um, we. Uh, we're driving to Manassas and through all these this country area and driving and driving, and finally my mother said, I think we're lost. And she drove just a little bit more, and we came up on a big sign for Manassas Battlefield. We also took trips down to the Fredericksburg area, and I remember going to Salem Church, and that was out in the That was this church and a couple monuments out in the country. And it's just sad because now it's a small oasis in the midst of uh, shopping malls. And um, we don't have that immediate type threat. There's been housing developments. But again, these superintendents that I've mentioned have worked hard to uh, get scenic easements, uh, working with preservation groups, working with the state of Maryland. And um, we, I think, retain the title of the most pristine Civil War battlefield in the country. Well, it is a, a magnificent spot. I, uh, you mentioned Shiloh as, as uh, comparable in terms of uh, it's certainly out in the middle of nowhere uh, and, and not developed uh, 
And I would put in a plug for Perryville, uh, Kentucky, which is a, a state, not a federal spot. But I've been there, and that that is. And uh, but I guess for the bigger, and we could list Pea Ridge is another one. But for uh, the big, yes, the, the, the big ones, the big blood bass, uh, and Tiedem and uh, Shiloh are uh, vying for the best preserve. And and uh, and certainly among the most significant. I not too long ago I was driving through. Uh, Western, southwestern Virginia, and saw the Sailors Creek site, which is not a major battlefield from the the uh, Appomattox campaign, but it's completely uh, undeveloped. I think there might be a marker there, uh, but it's what what you're saying. Uh, perhaps once upon a time, Manassas was like there's just nothing out there. Well, there was. Not, I remember uh, going to the reenactment of uh, First Manassas in 1961, and. Uh, you know, this is way out in the country. And and uh, how that has changed. Well, let's change gears a bit and talk about the battle itself. Uh, um, for m- many people, you know, if they know a battle, they know about Gettysburg. That's sort of where uh, the, the non-enthusiast's uh, interest uh, starts and sometimes stops. Um, but there are a lot of people in the field, uh, Jim McPherson most recently, who would argue that Antietam was more important than Gettysburg. Uh, how do you see that? Well, I agree with Jim McPherson, and uh, I've worked with him on a number of projects. Uh, in the fall of 1862, the Confederacy was on a roll on a thousand-mile front. They invade. They uh, have um, incursions out of North Mississippi to try to secure, resecure Western Tennessee. There's a two-pronged Confederate movement into Kentucky. Uh, there's a, a smaller Confederate movement into the Kanawha Valley of Western Virginia, now West Virginia. And then, uh, then there's going to be a movement uh, late fall. Uh, uh, from Arkansas to try to regain Missouri. And uh, the largest of these incursions is into Maryland, led by Robert E. Lee. And these incursions all have one thing in common. They all fail. And now, and uh, Jim McPherson has written an excellent study of Antietam from the big picture angle, Um uh, it pretty much seals that along with the Emancipation Proclamation, which is inspired by the Union success at Antietam uh, and repelling Lee, uh, pretty much squelches the uh, possibility of uh, uh, intervention from England, for example, um, for, on behalf of the Southern Confederacy. Also, uh, never again will the South be able to mount to, to mount that type of invasions on thousand mile front, so a lot of us look at uh, Antietam and the particular and the other in, in, in incursions in general as the high, true high tide of the Confederacy. And a number of years ago, I have a talk on this that I gave, and I was at the uh, Lynchburg, Virginia Civil War Roundtable, and. Um, one of the members, uh, as we were discussing this, he spoke up and he likened Gettysburg to the Battle of the Bulge. 
there was a dramatic, deep incursion into enemy territory. It was very bloody, but in the end, it didn't solve much. By that time, the the campaign is decided. In other words, uh, in 1863, just like in 1944. Yes, and by early 1862. Uh, large chunks of the uh, Mid-South are starting to crumble. Uh, you have Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson. You have uh, uh, Nashville captured. Uh, then you have, the fall of Mem- you have the fall of Memphis and New Orleans. And uh, then many, many uh, on the Atlantic coast, uh, ports, southern ports. So it starts to get downhill very early. Uh, when when the South counterattacks in the autumn of, of 1862, I mean, you, you point out it's on a thousand-mile front, but it's not really coordinated, it, it, it seems to me. It's not as if... No, it's not. It's not like Jeff Davis is, uh, like LBJ trying to, you know, LBJ sometimes tried to direct the Vietnam War from the, the bunker, I guess. Um, it's not like that. These are, at best, loosely coordinated. Uh, there is some coordination uh, with Robert E. Lee and uh, General Loring, who's uh, moved into the Kanawha Valley of West Western Virginia. Uh, Lee is cognizant of the uh, Kentucky incursions, but no, it's not a, a master uh, coordination from Rich. But it just works out that way. Yeah. Uh, which is almost a phrase you can use about a lot of Civil War battles. It just just worked out that way. Nobody intended it, certainly. Well, let, let's look at Lee's campaign. The, uh, the one reason often advanced for it failing was the amount of desertion, the, uh, the number of soldiers who didn't want to go on an incursion into the North. Uh, was that a significant factor? Well, it is a factor uh, because... Um we have to remember, and some historians are lumping the Maryland campaign into a, a bigger campaign that begins um, with uh, Lee repelling McClellan from the peninsula and moving swiftly up into uh, northern Virginia in what we know as the Second Manassas Campaign, and then uh, moving into Maryland. And uh, the thing is, uh, those soldiers of Lee's army, who were all combat veterans by and large, an advantage they had over their northern opponents in the Army of the Potomac, have been on the march now, uh, you know, throughout the summer of uh, 1862. They're sick, many of them, they're wore out. Some of them just simply can't go any further. So the the army is at some disadvantage there. The uh, uh, Lee also doesn't find quite the reception in Maryland he was hoping for in terms of, of new recruits. No, uh, that was a reason that Lee went into Maryland, but not a major one because uh, most of the Marylanders that were going to go fight for the South had gone in 1861. Uh, the accounts vary uh, with a low of 12,000 and something and maybe upwards of 20,000 Marylanders fought for the Confederacy. Hmm. The, the the thing that really skews the campaign that, that 
uh, th- that no novelist could put in a book because it'd be too unlikely uh, is the loss of Leaf's special orders. Uh, one of the great what effect what effect did that have as you see it? Well, it's one of the greatest flukes in uh, American military history, but it's sometimes overstated and uh, sometimes viewed as the uh, end-all, be-all, and it's not. It's a um, snapshot in time that gives uh, McClellan some idea of uh, what the dispositions of uh, Lee's army at a particular time, but it's uh, sometimes, I believe, overrated. Uh, But it gives the opponent uh, some idea like I said, of uh, Lee's, uh, how Lee's forces are laid out there. But that that information grows stale over time. Exactly. Uh, the, the forces move. McClellan does move. I mean, he, it takes him a while, but he does act faster than he would have acted otherwise. Yes, he gets a lot of criticism for being slow, but actually they move rather fast uh, from their camps around Rockville, Maryland, and moving against... Uh, Lee's army, and uh, McClellan does a lot of uh, the right things. Uh, You know, the critics portray him as a complete buffoon, but he does a lot of the right things, and he's able to pin Lee's army down at Sharpsburg and uh, nearly destroy him. Well, he... uh, Now, in in McClellan's attempt to to, to get hold of Lee's army before Lee can reconcentrate the the separated pieces, uh, he has to fight his way through some parts of that army. And that's a, a subject we can talk about when we come back in just a minute. We're going to take another break. Today, we're talking with Ted Alexander of the Antietam Battlefield on Civil War Talk Radio. World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. September 17, 1862, the most costly day in American military history, the Battle of Antietam. We'll find out more of what happened there from the battlefield historian, Ted Alexander when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. My husband and I... We met at a strip mall dance. He was 20, I was 17. It was a beautiful strip mall built by my grandfather after he'd emigrated from Holland to be a farmer. Anyway, when I saw my husband at that dance, I realized I'd seen him before at a big rally at the highway on-ramp. For all the men who'd enlisted, he was going to war. Two weeks later, he left for basic training. Oh, I cried my eyes out that day. His train left the car dealership. But we rode to each other every day. I rode my bike the ten miles to the high rise each morning, just so I could meet the mail when it got there. Four years later, he came home to me, and we married at the little convenience store downtown. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. 
To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Ted Alexander, Chief Historian of the Antietam National Battlefield Park. We talked in our last segment about the Antietam campaign and a little bit about the history of the battlefield itself as a memorial, as a, a monument, as a battlefield park after the Civil War. Uh, what we haven't talked about much is, is what actually happened on the day of battle, and, and uh, I'd like to turn to that. Uh, we, we could spend many whole shows on that, but uh, um, Ted, is it possible that one reason why the battlefield may ha- has such an aura about it is the the places, uh, the, the ones that stuck in my mind when I was nine years old were things like the Sunken Road or, or the Dunker Church uh, that looked just as they do uh, in, in the, the photographs. Uh, they still look the same way today. Uh, you, you can easily picture them. Is, is it that, are, are there features of the battlefield that other battlefields don't have? I think we are fortunate to have those. Those are what you've named are some of the most famous landmarks in American history, uh, and then what took place there. All the uh, fighting around the the Dunker Church, which was, is now has been was restored in the uh, during the Civil War centennial, and uh, the, the Sunken Road, Bloody Lane, the Burnside Bridge. Uh, I don't know if you remember this when we we were kids. They Marks had a toy set uh, of the blue and the gray, and there was a stone among the accessories was a stone bridge. Now that bridge was only two arch, whereas Burnside Bridge is three arch. But we know what they meant. Ted, I'm looking right now at one of those blue and gray soldiers on my office shelf. I when I got home from that seeing Antietam the first time. I wanted that for Christmas more than anything in the world, and I got it. And I remember I have uh, still at home somewhere the, the two arch stone bridge and the blue and gray soldiers. And yes, that 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 bridge was was absolutely iconic. You, you, you totally knew that that was Antietam, even though, as you say, it was not the right size. Uh, it, it it absolutely uh, conveyed that message. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I, Antietam is just filled with the, these places. So, it, it uh, well, well, let's let's talk about the stone bridge while we're there. The the, uh, uh, the our listeners, I'm sure most of them know the outline of the battle, the, the series of, of uncoordinated federal attacks that don't, not, none of them uh, are successful in themselves, and none could be more tragic than the third one, Burnside's attempt to cross the bridge. Uh, the, the story one often reads is that he could have waded his troops across the creek. Is that actually true? No, that's one of the uh, myths of Antietam. Uh, we like to think that, and maybe today somebody in swimming trunks and sneakers can do it. But we're talking about moving masses of men with paper cart- cartridges for their weapons. We're talking uh, 
brogans that they wear, and you got to keep your powder dry. It would be hard to keep your powder dry going through there. It would be hard to keep your formations. And uh, as the uh, late, great Jay Luvos uh, said many years ago, those banks uh, of the creek are soon going to be slippery and become an otter slide. Uh, those are the challenges based on the technology and the tactics of the day. It's best to use that uh, bridge. And uh, there were attempts to get through the way through the creek. They were met with disaster. The 11th Connecticut was shot to pieces. And they finally get to the other side by using the bridge. I think that's interesting because you said in the previous segment a lot of people regard McClellan as a complete buffoon, but he had to do a lot of things right. And a lot of people regard Burnside as a complete buffoon, but you're saying... Uh, really, he had to go across the bridge if he was going to cross. Yeah, he really did. This idea of crossing the creek is uh, more of a fantasy because they're getting shot at, and it's not not a practical thing to do. Now, one of the things that, that one sees at the battlefield that maybe maps don't convey so well is when the Union troops want to cross that bridge, it's not just that they have to cross the bridge. They have to, to go along the road parallel to the creek for some distance, exposed to enemy fire, and then go across the bridge. Uh, it, it's not an easy trip to make. It's not an easy trip. Unfortunately, uh, Burnside let his men rest uh, for several hours uh, to replenish the ammunition, get some chow. So when they start moving again, uh, just in the nick of time, uh, Lee's last reinforcements, A.P. Hill's Light Division, has arrived on the field. So if they had gone sooner, they might have gotten across the bridge and into Antietam itself, into Sharpsburg itself. Correct, because Lee simply has no more men. They're all spent. Now, the I, I, you often hear it say said that, that the, battle, the war really could have ended that day if... If McClellan had put his troops in uh, uh, simultaneously, instead of Hooker first and then attack in the center, then Burnside on the left, if he had put in all three uh, efforts at once, given that Lee had nowhere to retreat to, had the Potomac at his back, uh, could the Army of, the, of Northern Virginia really have been destroyed that day? Well, uh, you know, uh, historians don't like to speculate on what if but there's certainly that possibility there. Um, uh, McClellan did a good thing. At, at the beginning, he moved, moved Hooker and uh, two other corps to the uh, Confederate left flank. That did two things. That blocked the Hagerstown sharpsburg Pike, which would keep the Confederate from any movement north then. Uh, and it also made Lee divert troops and weaken his right flank and send those troops up to assist in the defense of the uh, uh, Confederate left around the Dunker Church and beyond. So uh, McClellan, to some degree, knew what he was doing. Uh, but when it came to it, I mean, McClellan might have been a good chess player if, if you're just playing with chess pieces, but, but playing with human lives, he did not have the 
the stomach for it. Uh, uh, To take another moment uh, that one often sees quoted, uh, late in the day, McClellan has the option to throw in uh, the Sixth Corps, the, the last reserve, and maybe that would have broken Lee's army. But he's unwilling to commit the last reserve or the last army of the Republic. Well, uh, uh, I think you're ahead. thinking of the Fifth Corps. The Sixth Corps actually gets on the field uh, up on the Union right, but uh, I'm trying. I'm Sumner, thinking Fifth Corps. No, that's uh, right. Second Corps is so shell shocked from the uh, experience in the West Woods that he advises against uh, Franklin and his Sixth Corps making any kind of uh, attack. They make a few small attacks and then don't pursue it. Um, the Fifth Corps, much of this is exaggerated, uh, this idea that they could send the Fifth Corps in. The Fifth Corps had suffered very heavy casualties uh, at Second Manassas. And then they're going to have a division under Humphreys, which is on the way, but it's uh, composed primarily of green troops that have been in the service a few weeks. Um, so the Fifth Corps is low on their unit strengths because of heavy casualties at Second Manassas, and then the fresh troops they have coming as reinforcements are not uh, veteran at all. So how much the Fifth Corps could have done is very problematic. These, this, is, this is great stuff. The, uh, are there other myths or, or misconceptions or commonly told stories that you hear all the time that uh, that don't quite measure up. Well, yes, and I remember some of these as a kid where uh, Bloody Lane, was, they were up to blood in their ankles <laughs> and uh, yeah. that the creek ran red with blood. I mean, you may have had elements of that, spots of blood here and there, but not a whole creek, you know, not like, uh, what was it, the Red Sea in the, in the biblical story. <laughs> Right. Uh, um, trying to think of so. oh another uh, myth after a fashion is the Confederate horse artillery anchoring the uh, Confederate left flank on Nicodemus Heights or Nicodemus Hill. Um, the uh, horse artillery it was just part of uh, Stuart's horse, horse artillery was up there for a brief time on the early morning of uh, 17 September, the day of the battle. But uh, quickly they were driven off there by heavy uh, Union counter-battery fire uh, from the Poffenberger farm. Uh, Now, they did um, several other times get up there, uh, the Confederates up on Nicodemus Heights, but they're not there all day anchoring uh, Lee's left. So... uh... Let me ask a, a different question, and, and we're drastically short of time, unfortunately. Um, if somebody wanted to read one book on Antietam, what would you recommend? Well, if you're just starting, uh, there's a number of standard sources. James Murphy's The Gleam of Bayonets is very good, as is uh, really, the, uh, I'm told, the bestseller in our museum shop is uh, Landscape Turned Red by Stephen Sears. Mm-hmm. Uh, one I highly recommend, uh, if you want to go further in all this, is the um, 
Taken at the Flood by Joseph Harsh. That's a more recent study, and it's from more of the Confederate viewpoint. It's very good, and a very good uh, an excellent micro-tactical study that focuses just on the Second Corps is Unfurl Those Colors by uh, Marion V. Armstrong. That looks at the West Woods action and the uh, Sunken Road action. It's the best thing that's ever been done, uh, particularly on the Sunken Road action. Hmm. It, uh, uh, things definitely to look forward to uh, uh, to reading those. Have you thought about writing about the battles uh, in book length? Well, I've done five books, and they include uh, Antietam a little bit, but uh, and I've done a, a lot of articles uh, for various publications on Antietam. Uh, but I hope I can do something. I've, I've thought about it when I've worked on some things. Um, but um, I had the pleasure of being the guest editor and writing some articles for a uh, kids' uh, magazine or booklet uh, called Cobblestone. We did a special Antietam issue. And that was a lot of fun just to do that. Yeah, those are good. I've, I've seen those Cobblestone ones. I used to sell them in the museum I, I once worked in. I think that we is... have to get the young people more involved. So that was fun doing that. That is absolutely true. I'm sorry to say we're out of time already. Uh, that happens too soon each week. Uh, but I've really enjoyed our conversation, and uh, I, I hope next time I'm up at Antietam I can drop in and say hello. I hope so. Thank you for having me. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.